This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Matthew Jarvis is not a magician, yet there are those who come to him when they're about to retire and expect him to make a small amount of retirement savings last for 30 years. Matthew is a certified financial planner whose clients are exclusively retired or within five years of doing so with at least $500,000 U.S. saved up. Depending on your current lifestyle, half a million dollars might seem like a lot of money or very little to last for 30 years. And that's the thing about retirement planning. It's very specific to the individual or couple and what they intend to do with those next 30 years. The truth is everyone's afraid of running out of money and there's no shame in that. What's important is that you talk to someone about it before it's too late. Though he's still a young man of 36, Matthew has been able to build Jarvis Financial into a very successful business since he started in the industry in the early 2000s. He currently manages over $115 million U.S. dollars in assets for his clients and has structured his business in a way that allows him to take over 80 days of vacation every year, spending quality time with his three kids while still providing full service to his clients. Matthew joined me from the Seattle, Washington area to tell his personal finance story. My very first personal finance memory, at least the most vivid one, was when my brother and I set up our first lemonade stand in front of our house. And we had, I, I, I seem to recall, we had made some astounding $20 that day selling lemonade at 50 cents a cup. And, nice. and he and I were so excited that we were going to split this $20 50-50 between the two of us. <laughs> and then my mom comes and says, wow, boys, you know, great job. Now you need to pay me back for all the supplies that you used. <laughs> <laughs> and it was about $30? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she had detailed out, you know, how many cups we used and how much each cup costs and how much lemonade we had used and how much the lemonade costs and the napkins. That's and awesome. A spreadsheet drawn out of, of how much we, we had owed her. And I, and I don't recall what it was, how much we owed her, but it definitely took the thunder out of our sales that we owed her. <laughs> Wait, wow. how, how much was the napkin? Do you remember how much? <laughs> you know, I, I just, I don't recall the numbers. I just, I can remember so vividly this piece of paper she wrote out saying, you know, you had used three packets of my napkins and that cost me this. And you used half of the 10 gallon jug of country time lemonade from Costco and you owe me back for that. <laughs> uh, well, your mom, your mom sounds awesome. Was she in the finance business at all or what did she do? No, no, not at all. My whole childhood, she was a stay-at-home mom, but she was just super great with numbers. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, at the time, I was pretty resentful to that lesson, but uh, <laughs> it stuck with me. And man, I don't, I don't start any business now without knowing all of the numbers inside and out. I'm assuming she would have managed the household finances as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure she did. Uh, I, I was pretty young at the time, so <laughs> it wasn't a discussion we had. But she was very much, you know, when I had my my paper round or my my mowing lawns in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, she was very diligent about, all right, well, how much is this costing and how much gas are you using in the lawnmower and, and uh, all of those things. In fact, I remember the lawnmower broke one time. I don't even remember why it broke, but I remember I got stuck with half the bill for getting it fixed because I was the one using it the most. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So these are like really good early financial lessons. Like, you know, you broke it, you bought it sort of, th yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. And the gross doesn't matter. You guys had your $20 gross, but uh, you netted out uh, a whole lot less, right? 
Yeah, and I, I don't even recall what the what we ended up netting out. But but you're right. That's a incredibly valuable. I mean, as you know, I uh, I work with a lot of financial advisors around the country, and a lot of times they get really hung up. And this is, this applies for all business owners, large or small. They get hung up on that gross number, mm. and then you start saying, well, how much are you actually taking home? I mean, what's what's the take home after expenses? And the number I really like to look at is kind of what's your take home once we account for your time. Yes. So let's, let's look at your net, and then let's divide it by how much you're working, and are, are you really making any money here? Or you're just working yourself to death uh, for pennies. That's smart too, because that, that's something that's not—it's not really tangible in that it's a, a cost that you have to pay. It's the opportunity cost. How much is your time worth? You, you got to do that calculation to find out. You know, maybe I could be—I uh, could be working a, a part-time job, uh, uh, retail, and make uh, more money. Yeah, I mean, at a minimum, you want to be aware of it, right? And, and the easiest way to do that is to simply divide the amount of money you made over any period of time—a a month, a year. And divide that by the uh, number of days or hours that you worked, right? And that kind of gives you a ballpark. And personally, that's one of the numbers I track most is what's my what's my revenue per hour that I work over the course of a year. That, that's awesome. So, you know, where did you head next? So, wait. So, you got that money? You got your money from uh, the lemonade stand? Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you remember what you would do with money at that time? Or were you a spender or you a saver? I was never much of a saver. In fact, my kids now are, are much better savers than I was then. I was never much of a saver. It would just sort of go from, I would make it and then I would spend it, which would give me an incentive to make some more. And so I was always working odd jobs in the neighborhood, a lot of mowing lawns, a lot of babysitting, uh, lemonade stands from time to time. As I got older, I worked for farmers that lived in the area. We lived in kind of a rural country town. Okay. What'd you do? Uh, what kind of farm work did you do? The guy that I worked for most, he, he uh, had a ton of horses. And so it was mostly shoveling horse manure <laughs> and other oh, such things. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this a is a solid $5 an hour. We, I haven't Great. published it yet, but this is the second conversation I've had where someone's first or second job was revolving around shit of some yeah. kind. Yeah. yeah. Didn't know if we were used to, able to use that kind of language on your podcast. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, that's a lot fine. of you know, shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. I, I'm fine with that. You know, maybe we could keep the F words down. I don't yeah. know, but the... Uh, I guess I won't tell you about that other job I had. I heard, yeah. That, <laughs> well, that, I, hopefully it's much later in your life written um, <laughs> before you were married. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, what, what is it, I guess... You know, they, they talk about we got to pay our dues when we start by like, you know, shoveling shit. But literally you did. And yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, the other person who, who uh, I don't want to spoil the podcast, I think it might be coming up before yours. But he had to empty out a bunch of frozen shit in uh, porta potties. Oh, wow. Yeah. He had to I didn't, melt I didn't it. That. He had to melt it out of there because it was left over in the winter and uh, from <laughs> the season. It was just like the worst <laughs> Worst thing that you could ever imagine. So okay, so you you know you started out doing that, and you know, it's just just pocket money. Is this uh, is this saving for school money or anything like no, that? No, you know I was not uh, early on. I was not good at saving. I would I would earn it and I would spend it and I would earn it and I would spend it. What are you uh, buying? What are you spending all your money on? Man, I wish I could even remember. Obviously, it wasn't memorable. It was just it was just junk. Yeah, um, like st- uh, stuff or like. Food and like you were, were you drinking or how old uh, how old are you at this? Well, time? let's see. How old was I at this time? I mean, when I was working at the farmer, I must have been fifteen or sixteen. So then I got a car, and I you know that's uh, that sunk a lot of money. Okay, and gas. You, had, you had bought it. You uh, monthly payments. I bought it. Yeah, thing? yeah. Just I think my first car was four hundred dollars. It was a what? 
86 Chevy Citation. If you want to look up the ugliest car ever made, Chevy Citation. <laughs> but 400. I mean, I, I would drive yeah, a, yeah. a cardboard box on wheels if that's yeah. all I had to pay. But you had to keep, was there a lot of maintenance then other than the Yeah, and of course there was. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a rolling wreck. But, okay. but I loved it. I had auto shop in high school and, and I thought okay, it was okay, good. to fix it. Yeah, so that, that was a lot of fun. And then uh, then as I got a better job, I just kind of got more expensive hobbies. I started out of high school. I worked full-time as a mechanic at car dealerships. And I, for my age, I was making pretty decent money. Uh, and then I got a girlfriend and I spent all that money on my girlfriend, which was great. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that's how it works, especially when, when you're starting out. Uh, yeah. So did you have any plans uh, at that point to to go into anything else? Like, I mean, you're in you're, you're in the financial planning space now. But, uh, but you know, I didn't, when I came out of high school, you know, my parents were really hard on me to go to college and then I was a little bit rebellious. And so I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, and a friend had offered me a job working at his car dealership and I thought, oh, I like fixing cars. This is a lot of fun. So for about five years I did that and I had a great time. I still spent every penny that I made. And then I eventually decided I didn't want to do, I didn't want to work on cars long-term. It was, it was a fun hobby when I was a teenager, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't a career for me. Did it start to get, uh, you know, physically uh, difficult, or what? What made you realize that you didn't want to keep doing it? Yeah, I mean, all the guys I worked with. So, in the realm of of auto mechanics, and only people that are auto mechanics would get this. In the realm of auto mechanics, working at a car dealership, like a Chevrolet dealership or Cadillac dealership, that's kind of like the top of the industry, mm-hmm. and that's where I was working just by chance. And, and even those guys, you know, they're all in their 40s and their 50s and their hands are broken up and their backs are broken up and they're still not, they weren't making any more money than I was. You know, when I was 18 or 19, I'm making the same amount of money that they were at 50. Okay. So it uh, flattens out. It, it flattens, flattens out, really out and it takes a toll uh, on you. Yeah. Okay. So you're, yep, you, you know, were, and I got to admit the thing that really got me is this, there's just no respect for the trades, Okay. whether that's mechanics or, and I have a ton of respect for the trades. Yeah. That, no it's too bad that that, that really exists is. because it's, it's such uh, valuable work and, uh, you know, the people only realize this when, you know, like I got a flat tire, I was on the side of the road or, uh, my yeah. windshield that need to be replaced. And, and I can't do that stuff myself. Like you, you might be able to do it, especially if you had a garage. And the trades are a totally, in my mind, they're a totally respectable profession. You make a very good living and, and, and we could really get on a tangent here about how the, the public school system really only has two outlets, right? You either go to college or you drop out Yeah. and, and no accommodation for anything else. And the trades are such a vital part of our economy. Well, they're looked down as a, like the the fallback option or the that's right, the, that's right. If you're not smart B. enough for college, you go into the trades, and, and that, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, you know, you're an entrepreneur, and I am as well. And what I'm realizing the more I talk to people is, I don't know, I just feel like we're going about this uh, this thing the wrong way. Like, if someone wants to go into academia, fine. If the, if you if you want to be a, oh, sure. in science, if you want to be a scientist, or you want to do a, a professional thing or whatever. But for a lot of people, they go like. I kind of feel like there shouldn't even be a, a, a degree, uh, like a university degree in business. Business, uh, like yes. business, <laughs> should be go out and run a business. And maybe here we'll give you some or come in. Uh, it should be just internships. I just feel like I don't know. I mean, it was valuable in a way. I got to learn a bit of stuff, but I didn't do anything. And that's that's the downside, right? I mean, you know, you're you're out there working in a business. You probably learn more about business working at a car dealership. <laughs> 
Yeah, I learned a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and running lemonade stands. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Right. And so so I think uh, I don't know. I just this is definitely a rant about uh, uh, the value of uh, especially for you guys, a university degree. I mean, what are you spending these days for a, an Ivy League degree? Yeah, I mean, for for an Ivy League degree. Yeah. You know, I had a client, her, her son just just finished at Stanford, right, which was real prestigious okay, Ivy yeah. League. Uh, and it was $50,000 a year yeah. tuition. And so, you know, four-year degree—that's two hundred thousand dollars. That's a that's a big hole to fill. Yeah, and if you're not uh, an athlete or uh, you know, whatever else they might give scholarships for, uh, maybe academic scholarships, right? If you're really smart, how are you paying for this? Is a Sally Mae thing? Is that uh, how do people pay for this? Uh, boy, that's most people. A lot of student loans, right? And then you're coming out of college with this huge this huge debt. And then you're still you still got to find a job that will come anywhere close. You know, and again, we could have a whole tangent on. On that, you know, yeah, exactly, exactly. going into college and not even thinking about, boy, am, am I actually going to be able to find a job that that could ever pay back this debt that I'm incurring? Well, that was so. Was any of that part of your rebellion uh, against going to school, or did, were you just uh, uh, I wasn't doing the opposite of time. mom and dad? Yeah, yeah, I wasn't, <laughs> okay. I wasn't that smart at the time. <laughs> I sort of luck over skill is, is my mantra. <laughs> so, what what did you decide to do uh, after the five years? Then, uh, where where did you end up? Yeah, so after that, my, my dad had really been leaning on me to come work at his financial planning practice, which really at the time, well, it, it was mostly kind of an insurance practice at the time. Okay. And so I thought, well, all right, I'll give, I'll give that a go. And he and I sort of struggled along at that for about five years. So this was like 2003 to 2008 until the financial crisis hit. And then uh, as, as fate would have it, at the same time as the financial crisis hit, dad ran into some really serious health issues, which he's since recovered from. But at the time, it forced him almost overnight to uh, to have to retire from the business. Oh, really? And so right in the depths of the financial crisis, as we're not making any money, suddenly he leaves and it's just me. Okay. <laughs> I thought, so, well, I mean, I could I could leave too or I can try to turn this thing around. And, and I was very successful at turning it around and, and I run a great practice now. But it took a bunch of years though. How long did it take for you to, to really turn it around? Oh, man. You know what? It only took me two years to turn it around. Oh, I nice. um, it, it just put my back against the wall. You know, you have those moments mm-hmm. where where you all fear goes away because you're, you're just so desperate that, that all fear goes away. And you're like, all right, I'm, I'm just going to do this for me. I thought I'm just going to do this. I'm, or, I'm already failing. Right. So worst case is I'm going to go out of business, which I think is inevitable. So I might as well do all those things I was afraid to do. So it's just trying. Yeah. That's, it's a really interesting place to be in, right. Where uh, yeah. the only place to go is, uh, is further down. So I might as well uh, take the risk. That's right. And, I might and, as well run down and maybe I'll bounce out. <laughs> and what what were you risking at this point? So uh you would were you spending some money to do like more marketing or just trying different initiatives? Uh, you know, I was quickly running out of available credit. So we okay. were we were losing money hand over fist and the end you know, there's only so much money people will lend to you for better and worse. And and the end of that was coming up very quickly. So it was, boy, I better I'm already in deep trouble. I can't just walk away from this. I'm already in deep trouble. Maybe I can get this turned around before I, before we run out of money. And were clients leaving step. too at that time? Because uh, I guess everybody blame. Does everybody blame the financial planner or the the people who are investing there? Because you're so in in the states. And correct me if I'm wrong. So sure. uh, C- I, to do financial planning, you have to have your CFP designation. Is that right? Uh, unfortunately, you don't. To do financial planning in the states, yeah, anybody can hang up a shingle and call themselves a financial planner. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, England's got that figured out. Australia's got that figured out. Uh, the states and apparently Canada are a little slow on that. But that doesn't include uh, the investment bit, financial planning and investing um, there's, money. There's like a real nominal requirement. You got to pass a you know relatively simple exam 
to get a license to do it, but like it, a it's a securities course or something yeah, like that. It's still far too low. Okay, so so you and do most uh, CFPs in the states uh, uh, also sell investments or invest money for their clients, or do they? Uh... Yeah, I would say the majority do. That's sort of anecdotal, but. But most are doing investments as well as planning. Yeah, because we have a lot of uh, just, you know, I'm a personal finance coach. You know, I have a, a registered retirement consultant designation. But, uh, you know, I'm not a CFP and there is a CFP designation. And then I have planning as part of my uh, my coaching, but it's not, I don't call myself Good. a planner or anything, right? Sure. I'm just sort of uh, guiding people along, right? Pointing them in the right in the right direction and sending them to others to in, invest and that that and that actually people who are registered to sell investments sure, sure. and to to you know people who are more of a fiduciary and and uh, I noticed yeah. on your website you have a whole fiduciary section and maybe you could talk about first what that means and 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 why that's important a fiduciary is a really old term it's a legal term which in essence means that you're going to put your client's interest ahead of your own and that any conflicts of interest that exist, because there are always conflicts, that you'll disclose those in advance. That's that's sort of the crux of it. Um, Sounds like common which, sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what most people assume is going on. Yeah. Um, because when you go to your doctor or your attorney or your accountant, uh, th- those professions are all bound by law to put their clients or their patients' interests before their own. You wouldn't expect that your doctor is the one making the medication that he's selling to you. That's right. You, you expect a, a little bit of a, a disconnect there between those two things, but you're saying that's not necessarily the case in your profession? That's correct. In, in finance, it's not the case. So unless, unless you have in writing, in, in writing, not a verbal assurance, but unless you have in writing for someone that they're acting as a fiduciary, you, you can count that they have some pretty serious conflicts of interest hmm. going on. So what would be a, a, an example of a, a major conflict maybe that you've seen in the past or, or maybe yeah. were you guys ever doing that in the past and you corrected it? Yeah. Um, well, so back like in the 90s, it was there, there wasn't really any way to reduce those conflicts. So, the, so what the way the compensation worked in the '90s is someone would buy an investment, a mutual fund, or something, and it would behind the scenes pay a commission to the person who sold it. Yeah, sort of like a, a salesman at a, a used car lot or something. But, but there was no disclosure of it, so so clients didn't know how much they were paying, and they would sort of get under the impression that Joe or Jane Advisor was recommending the best investment. But what could be really happening is that. Joe or Jane advisor was really just recommending the one that paid them the most or that would get buy them that fancy vacation trip or whatever the case is. And then some investment firms, which we'll not name, but everyone would recognize the names, they were selling to their clients uh, investments that they were creating. In fact, part of the issue that exasperated the financial crisis is these big investment firms, they knew that all these mortgages were going sideways and they didn't want them anymore. So they started dumping them on their clients saying, hey, you really should buy these. <laughs> and what they weren't saying is, hey, we're, you, you should buy them because we need someone to buy them from us, right? We want to get rid of this crap. Uh, and it's you, you're the sucker. Wow. So it was the trusted the trusted advisors who were really offloading these, where they packaged a bunch of mortgages together and sold them bits of them off, right? That's correct, yeah. When when Because the banks started seeing it first. They're like, oh boy, nobody's making their mortgage payments on all this crap mortgages. We need to get rid of these things or we're going to get stuck with them. And they started dumping them onto their clients under the guise of, hey, we're your trusted advisor. You should buy these things. And they didn't disclose that they were the ones selling them. I wrote a little bit of a post on the financial crisis because uh, you know, even since uh, two thousand eight, it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard to explain in plain words exactly what happened, right? If you're talking to somebody, what exactly happened, and you try to get them through it, and and you're like, oh, you know, people were getting mortgages and they shouldn't have, and then the, the people couldn't pay them, like you just said, right? 
But yeah. um, the fil- the National Film Board of Canada put together this kind of cool interactive. It's like a little chatbot that guides you through, and there's videos huh. and stuff. So I wrote a little blog about that, and it's called "How to Create a Financial Crisis," and it, it goes through <laughs> it goes through all the steps that you would have to go through to to recreate what what happened. And there's like there are so many people involved, and they're all doing the wrong thing, basically, right? You know? Yeah, it was it was everybody was doing the wrong thing. Yeah, just all at once. And uh, so, I mean, in a way, the crisis was a good thing. Uh, it was terrible for a lot of a lot of people, but yeah. it was good for regulation, I guess, right? I hope so. We'll see when the next one comes. Yeah, around. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, so but they're not really allowed comes... to do that anymore, right? They're not allowed to do the <laughs> su- do the subprime mortgages, and uh, uh, are it, they? It just it's it's coming back. It, everything Is goes it? in cycles. Oh, yeah, no. and it'll be something else next time. Sure. Okay. It happened in the it happened in the early '90s with the savings and loans in the United States. It yeah. happened in the mid '90s with hedge funds. So they're always trying to do some. They're always <laughs> scheming. There's always somebody scheming. Oh yeah, there's always somebody scheming, right? And there's always politicians willing to uh, assist in the scheme of it. But kind of to translate this back to your listeners in today's world, I mean, really what you've got to make sure you're doing is understanding how the person is being compensated. Yeah, okay. Right? So somebody, so everybody's always getting paid, right? And you just want to make sure you know how they're getting paid, right? Are you paying them a fee for their coaching, right? Or are they, you know, they say, hey, don't worry about it. I'm getting paid by the company. Well, that, that's really a myth because the company is paying them with your money. And everybody needs to make a living. You just need to understand how are they getting paid and how could that negatively influence the advice they're giving you. You know, I will get referral fees for uh, if I refer uh, my clients to uh, investment people, right? Sure. And sure. that, if I didn't disclose that, that you would say that was a conflict. That might be a conflict of interest because I'm not telling people. Is that? Yeah. If you didn't disclose that, if you said, "Hey, I think you should go work with Dave down the street." And then you don't mention that Dave Dave pays you for that. You know, that could be a conflict of interest because maybe, and this is not specific to you, Bo, of course, but maybe you're recommending Dave because he's paying you and not because he's the best for your clients. Yeah. So how, how does one know? How does somebody know, just to, to keep using me as an example, how does sure. somebody know that I'm not, like, let's say I, I, I refer them to a robo-advisor, right? And the robo-advisor pays me a little bit of percentage, doesn't cost the client anything. How do they know that... I'm not just doing that. I'm not referring to them because they're paying me. I'm like personally, just to give my perspective, I'm referring uh, them to the robo-advisor because it's a good product for them. Yeah. But how do you know to trust someone? Like how would someone know to trust me? What would you say about that? Well, I mean, I would start by saying the fact that you're willing to disclose it gains a lot of trust in mind, right? Because it's impossible to eliminate conflicts of interest, right? Let's uh, You you got to make money, right? Yeah, everybody always everywhere has some kind of conflict of interest. Yeah. And so the, I think the key is just to have the integrity to disclose that. And and then it then it really becomes on you, you know, well you as a, you as the provider or as the pr- consumer, right? Do I trust this person that their advice is not being slighted by this by this conflict? Mhm. Okay, so it really just comes down to having an open and uh, a candid conversation about what's going on, right? And, and for example, like, you know, I, I, I would refer to robo advisors because they're uncomplicated and they have very low fees. Right. Yeah. Um, I refer lots of people to Vanguard. I don't, sure. I don't get any compensation for that, but um, if they offered it to me, I'd probably take it. I send them a lot of business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. Why wouldn't you try to work out some kind of a referral deal with them? Is it because that's not your core business? Yeah. That's not, that's not my core business. Cause you have investments is, is of your more. own. 
you know, in, in our firm, we do it all internally and, and a lot of other things. But I, people that aren't a good fit for our firm, I say, hey, you know, you really ought to go check out Vanguard. They've got this great dial a CFP program. They're, they're a good group to work with. And is it those people who don't sort of meet your criteria for, for clients? Yeah, that's correct. You know, so I work almost entirely with people that are retired and that have done a really good job saving money. So if somebody comes to me in their 20s and they say, oh, wait, Matthew, I really want to save for retirement. I say, listen, you call up Vanguard, get or go online, actually, don't call them up. Go online, set up an account with Vanguard, buy a, what they call a target date fund. It's just set up based on when you hope to retire. And everything's handled for you. No, I had one of those when I worked for for a corporation. They just had it was like a twenty forty five fund, which yeah, is yeah. when I would be sixty five. And that's yep. it. It just slowly kind of changes as I get older, and it it rebalances itself to be yep. you know safer as I get older, right? That was uh, uh, those are probably the simplest. But the fees on these though, like uh, does Vanguard have a better one? Because I remember. The fees are probably closer to two percent on on the one that I, the mutual fund that I was given. Yeah, so the target date funds run the whole gambit, just like any mutual fund or investment fund. There's there's great ones and there's really lousy ones inside of four hundred one k or so American retirement accounts. They're pretty lousy in general okay. because you don't have a choice, right? If you work for ABC company, they just I pick guess, the fund. I guess yeah. ABC is a company, so let's say XYZ <laughs> company. That was probably um, a they, company too. <laughs> yeah, they probably they just pick the investments for you. And, uh, and you don't have a lot of choices. So that you're kind of limited on. But if you go to like a Vanguard, um, they're going to have some very inexpensive ones if you're going direct with them. They're, theirs are always some of the cheapest in the industry, at least in the States. And this is somebody, if somebody were to do this, say, on their own, they would open a brokerage account and then yeah. they, would, they would go and purchase these themselves. If they, if they wanted to do that, which, you know, if so, anybody has any inkling to manage their own investments, then that's not so difficult. To, there's a lot of how-tos on the, on the web and that kind of thing, couch potato uh, methods <laughs> where you can just yeah. buy indexes like this, right? Yeah, that's, and the Vanguard stuff is almost entirely indexes. Yeah, okay, yeah. So that's one way. And then the other robo-advisors, you pay them a little bit, they do the picking for you and they balance Correct. everything out and they don't promise crazy high returns, but they're going to promise average returns. Where do you fit in there? What about yours? Like, you know, just to speak to your, uh, your uh, pre-retirement or retirement clients. Yeah. So like I said, essentially all my clients are retired. So they're, they've saved up all this money right over the course of their career. And they're trying to say, all right, how do I take this big lump sum of money, be it a few hundred thousand or a few million? How do I turn this into an income, right? How do I, mm. how do I turn this lump sum into a, a monthly paycheck? And then, so our job is to, to facilitate that and then deal with all the other tax and logistical issues that go along uh, with that. So you're investing in pretty safe stuff for them? Yeah, we're doing it well. So we use index funds, um, but it's, you know, when you retire, let's say you retire at 65, which is sort of the average retirement age. Yeah. Uh, you still got 30 years ahead of you. We've got, that's a, that's a long time, right? Three yeah, decades. It's a lot longer uh, than it used to be, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And it keeps getting longer. So you've got three decades conservatively ahead of you. That's a long time to get a, a lump sum of money to last. So it's got to stay sure. pretty heavily invested just to keep up with inflation. Okay. Yeah. And and so you have investments that are geared towards beating inflation by just a little bit or actually getting returns so that it can last a lot longer. Yeah. We've got to stay pretty heavily invested in equities, you know, in, in, in publicly traded companies so that we get that long-term growth that yeah. we need. So, but is there a risk for someone who's 65 and no, now no more money is getting put in? You're just dealing with a lump sum, right? Yeah, so, so huge risk, right? You've got yeah. to, you know, what if you retired in 2007 and yeah, then, yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 at least the U.S. markets fell 57%. In we we probably went along with that, yeah. Yeah, I think the markets all around the world were about that same place, right? They were all just just horrible. 
you know, you've got to have a plan in place for how are you going to handle that. And that's, you know, people got, the people who got in the most trouble were the ones that were surprised that that happened. You know, a handful of people saw it coming, at least they claim to have seen it coming. But we see these every five to 10 years. It's just how the economic cycle works. Well, let's say, uh, just take an example. So, uh, yeah, sure. you know, I'm, I'm 65 I got a million bucks. I don't know. Yep. Is that is typically would a million bucks to be okay for a person these days? What, what do you uh, what do you see if they want to live thirty yeah. years? You know, it all depends on on the hole the in the bottom of the egg, yeah. right? Okay. It's all you know. I got clients that um, that I got a, a clients a couple. They were both school teachers, which maybe school teachers get paid well in Canada. They don't get paid well in the states. They had just on diligent savings saved up two million dollars between them, wow. which is amazing. So they saved this money and they, they never really touched it in retirement. They had a little teacher's pension and their social security. And that was what they lived on. They just had really simple lives. On the other hand, I, I had a fellow come in the other day, a doctor, and he needed to, due to some injuries, he needed to retire right away. And he says, Matthew, I've saved a lot of money. I said, well, boy, how much? He says a million dollars. I said, well, that's, that's great. That is a lot of money. How much income do you need? And he says, I, I just need $200,000 a year of income. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, well, let me do some, some simple math yeah, for simple you. Yeah, simple math, yeah. 200000 goes into a million about five times. Yeah. Actually, exactly five times. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you said you're 63 now. At 68, you'll be out of money. That's right. Even if you invest, like, let's say Doesn't matter what you, you do. got 10% a year, like something yeah. crazy But now it goes good. six years? Now you, exactly. Now you have one more year. <laughs> or you invest it crazy, and then in year four, you run out of money because the market goes way down. What does this guy do? He keeps working. That guy's, uh, we have this expression called SOL, shit out of luck. <laughs> uh, okay. So that guy, I said, hey, here, here's what, you know, you can't get 200000 You can get about 50000 Yeah. And he says, oh, my goodness, I can't live on that. And I said, well, I, I saw your car that you drove in. It was very fancy. Yeah. Maybe you can downsize. And you told me that you live in this $2 million house overlooking the ocean. That's the next thing you got to get rid of. And he says, I can't get rid of those. And I said, well, I don't do magic here. I can't, I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you're not a magician. The, yeah. um, do you find that a lot of people come to you with this similar problem? Like, I, this is a lot of money, yeah. But I want to maintain this crazy lifestyle. Maybe he was making one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand a year. Is that why? Yeah, that's how he came up with that number. Yeah. He was making two hundred or two hundred fifty thousand a year. But you're not going to get a replacement with that. Like early on, uh, what the answer to me would be early on in his career when he started making that, then sit down with you or someone like you. <laughs> yeah, he was way behind the eight ball. I mean, so yeah. so really, everybody should be saving about twenty percent of their income if they if they hope to retire someday. And now you can include in that any government savings plan. So here in the States, we have Social Security. You guys have something similar there in Canada. Yeah, we have Canada Pension Plan and Old Age Security. Right now, they might come to 18 grand a year from that if you yeah, now, you know, worked right. in the if you worked for your whole life and lived in the country for your whole life. So it's not a lot. Is that, you said it's similar no. in the States? It's pretty similar. Yeah. Um, so uh, Unless you're going to live really frugally, you better be saving a lot of money. I just don't understand sometimes if you have this goal of living on a $200,000 income, but you do nothing to, to move towards that goal. I mean, do people think, like you said, it is magic. They think that just magic is going to happen. Oh, I'm looking yeah. for something like a 20% return. Can I just get, <laughs> can I just get my, uh, you know, a million dollars and make a 20% return and then uh, live off of that for the rest of my life consistently? Yeah, uh, you know it, it's yeah, and it's easy sometimes for people to get disconnected. They say, "Oh, well, that guy, you know, he's making so much money, he's just delusional." 
but you know, it happens to us at all income levels. I guess um, so. Yeah. Right. Whether it's credit card debt, right? I was like, I'll, I'll put a bunch of money on my credit card. I can't afford this stuff now, but magically in the future, I'll be able to afford it plus interest. It's an easy trap to fall into. Yeah. Why? Like, uh, I, I talk about this all the time. I just feel like we're just so lost when it comes to money. And I want to blame the people who are selling all the products. Get a credit card so you can live yeah, your dreams. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, but it's not entirely their fault. We have to have some common sense too. If you don't have the ability, I'm probably going to sound like a broken record to anyone who listens to the podcast. <laughs> if you don't have the ability to pay off a credit card within a reasonable amount of time, if not right away, it's not a license to spend. It really isn't. And, and you're right. That's what leads people to the situation that they're in when they come to you yeah. with low amounts. Well, and you know, it really stems down to it's kind of a, um, I don't want to get on a soapbox here. It's a little bit of a societal failure. It seems to be persistent all across North America. It's it probably is. similar in other parts of the world. But Absolutely. You think about where, where do you learn about finance, right? You, you, don't, you don't learn about it in uh, elementary school. You don't learn about it in college. Most people don't learn about it from their parents. And so all of our financial lessons come from whom? Come from the people who are selling these products. Yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, from Visa, from MasterCard, from American Express, from you know whomever giving us bad from the car dealership saying, yeah, you can buy this car with nothing down. Not only are we not being taught good finances, we're actually being bombarded with, with terrible financial decision-making. It's like, I don't know, is there, is there a comparison to a, another another industry? <laughs> i just trying to think about like restaurants. Can we like somehow equate this to like if somebody was just making all of this stuff and uh, nobody told us what was healthy or not and then McDonald's said, just eat here every day and you'll be good. Well, you know, that's a, that's an interesting example, right? So we look at, at nutrition, right? Yeah. Um, you know, my, my kids are in elementary school right now and, and there's a physical education class every day and they're always bringing stuff home about nutrition and companies have to publish nutrition data. Uh, and yet we talk nothing about personal finance ever, right? I, I've never seen my kids come home with any homework on personal finance. I just went to a financial wellness conference and that oh, sure. it is becoming a more of a thing now. Corporations are taking on. Yes. Yeah. They, they're seeing. So the, obviously physical wellness was the, the first thing, you know, with uh, here's your chiropractic and massage uh, yeah. benefits, uh, things like yeah. that. Health and health insurance in the States. You know, they see that obviously that's valuable. And then hopefully the mental health uh, conversation is also being opened up in the States. I, I feel like it is. I feel like I'm seeing it all over the financial wellness. So, you know, the, the facilitator, uh, the organizer of the conference said, uh, I can get anyone to come up here. I can find people to speak about their, their mental, uh, mental health uh, problems that they had, the depression, anxiety. I, sure. I had an addiction to gambling. That was, that's my yeah, story. Yeah. People are more willing to get up and talk about that stuff now than to talk about how they uh, had credit card debt and couldn't pay it off and had to get payday loans. It's still embarrassing and it, there's still so much shame and yeah. it, and it's all cause it's all it's a it's a loop right it's uh you don't talk about it so you get further in debt if you're able to talk about it right away you think maybe somebody would say you know you can actually just get a consolidation uh loan or go see a, a debt consolidator or file for bankruptcy if we talked about it more people could find the solutions earlier you know so the the nutrition is so important for kids why because maybe there because there was an obesity epidemic yep. maybe because uh, uh people aren't uh, you know people are dying or not living as long people are getting diseases whatever look at how we all attacked uh smoking right to create awareness of the dangers of smoking yeah uh, you know imagine if a similar campaign was launched on the, the dangers of debt it's so dangerous. It, 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 I mean, I, I don't know the stats, but and it probably doesn't take uh, as many lives as smoking, but uh, it takes lives too. 
that oh, that takes lives. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about how people oh. are so destitute that they commit suicide, but it happens. I don't have any statistics on this, but and anecdotally, I'd have to agree with you, right? I mean, yes, the stress that it creates in relationships, in families, All of it. in employers, that it does to your health, ruins lives. Um, oh yeah. And like you said, we're so ashamed to talk about it, right? Let's go back to you getting started in this business. So you were like not, I was like, I don't want to put my head around this finance stuff. But you seem to have a, a real passion for it now. How did you get from there to here? Yeah, I mean, when I first started working with my dad, I was kind of like, all right, I'll give this a try. I don't want a mechanic anymore. I don't know what I want to do. Um, I'll, I'll work with him. Um and then I struggled for a lot of years because I couldn't figure out how to articulate to people what they should do with their finances, right? I sort of knew from an intellectual standpoint, but the numbers are such a small part of personal finance, right? And you and I just talked about the shame that comes with money and in these early childhood experiences. And yet as professionals, we often try to go straight to the numbers. Yeah. Hey, you should be saving this much and spending that much. It's the practical thing, but you're right. It's all emotional. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, we should start with that, as you're saying. It's all behavioral finance. That's, yeah. that's really all that. That matters, and that's why I love you know shows like you're doing and that other people are doing, right? Because you're saying, boy, it's not just numbers, right? We're not just going to talk about how to do math here. We're going to talk about the reality of savings really hard and borrowing is really easy. And how do we reverse that? Did you stumble across this concept at a at a certain point and realize the value of it? it? Took me a long time to figure it out. You know, I studied enough things, I read enough things, I sort of figured out enough things, and then eventually I like, oh wait, you know, you've got to build art, articulate this in a way that makes sense to people and that they can actually implement. And then once I was able to do that, then I really started seeing people's lives change. And I, I don't want to be overly dramatic with that, but people that would come in, no matter how much money they had saved, and they were terrified that they were going to run out of money in retirement, and we could say, all right, let's create a plan so you don't. Uh, but let's acknowledge the reality that you're afraid of this. And there's no shame in that because everyone's afraid of running out of money. It's it's in our very DNA. I mean, retirement is a, a relatively recent phenomenon. What is the records of human civilization for, what, about 10,000 years or so? Only in the last 100 years did anyone ever retire. Yeah. Everybody else just worked until they died. Yeah, they, right? and, so, and it's because they probably have a lifelong trade and then they pass it on, right? That's right. Or like uh, artisans and, and apprentices and, and yeah. that kind of, the whole idea of retirement, the concept itself is is because you didn't like what you were doing or you can't do it anymore. That's the physical aspect of it, right? Uh, at 65, yeah. you're probably not going to be able to lift things anymore. So, But you did good work for us, so we're going to help you out and take care of you. We're just not programmed as human beings to manage money, right? I mean, there, there is no other species on earth managing money, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. <we're sort> of <laughs> not, that I, not that I know of. Uh, but So you came up with this system now. I, I'm looking at your website. Were you doing this uh, uh, when you started to take over in uh, 2008? Or did you, no, did you come no, up with this? 2008. No, Um I mean, really sort of 2009, 2010 is where I was able to make that, what I call my kind of my transformation or my transition. And then I've just been perfecting it since. And, and now I do a lot of consulting and coaching with other financial advisors, trying to teach them, all right, how do you, how do you do this, right? How do you actually, I don't say actually help people, right? Everybody's trying to help people, you know, all the good people are, I guess, but how do you make that effective, right? How do you get past the numbers so that you're actually making change in people's lives? So you were able to uh, like what was costing you the the what was costing you the money at that point when you were before you were about to turn over you just your costs were way too high and you weren't uh, oh yeah our costs were way too high we had, you, you we had, had clients too, that the wrong work we um, okay. you know, we had to pay for office space and and insurance and taxes and and the copy machine and the internet and the cell phones and yeah so all that and nobody was really looking at the net did you immediately start saying like I want to focus on a certain 
type of client so that I can really narrow down what it is I do and do it really well? Yeah, I did. I mean, before, and a lot of entrepreneurs in all fields make this mistake. They say, well, I'll work with anybody who will pay me. Or yeah. I'll work with anybody who'll pay me, right? And, and there's a bit of a survival there. You know, you've got a mortgage to pay or a family to feed or, or whatever. But as consumers, we always want to work with specialists, right? We want to work with somebody who knows what I need. And so I began specializing in people that were retiring, you know, within just a year or two or already retired. And I got very good at the needs that they had, but, which meant that I turned away a lot of business. And that was okay. The more business I turned away, the more I got. I think I remember you saying in another podcast that you had a, a minimum amount that people had come in there, but then it just kept getting higher as you, you realize that the, this, uh, the amount of money that you might make from managing someone's investments is not worth the time. Yeah. Well, I started to run into capacity, right? I can only, I can only serve uh, so many clients That's true. Yeah. at the level of service that I wanted. So um, I just started kind of raising that, the kind of the bar there. And, and you know, I note on specialty, right? A, a lot of entrepreneurs, like I said, they think they can't specialize, but let, let's look at the medical field for example. You know, let's say that heaven forbid you were diagnosed with cancer. You, you wouldn't go to a cardiologist or a pediatrician it's or you, know, you would look for an oncologist, right? You would look for someone and ideally you would look for an oncologist that specializes in the type of cancer that you'd been diagnosed with. But as entrepreneurs, we're like, hey, you know what? Whatever ails you, any ailment, come to me and I will solve that ailment. I'll figure and it out. Why no one's interested in that. Yeah, come to me, come to me, and I'll uh, I'll I'll figure it out. But no, you're right. It's uh, it, it makes more sense to go to someone who really knows their stuff. And and so you were able to by doing that, you were able to sort of craft it into a practice that you like. And because of the amount of money that uh, people were coming to you, you were able to work out a work-life balance for yourself. Yeah, I, I became very committed uh, to a work-life balance. Uh, there's this this idea of a, of a Calvinistic work ethic, which was some of the kind of the early uh, pioneers or the early pilgrims uh, to the United States. And I imagine a lot of them are in Canada as well. But the Calvinists believed, it was a religious group, they believed that that in order to go to heaven, you had to be just incredibly hardworking. Okay. And, and this sort of permeates the American culture and, and other cultures as well. I don't want to be specific to America, but it's really prevalent here. This idea that if you want to be a good person, whether you're religious or not, then you have to work a lot. And we became so focused on effort that we almost started forgetting about the results. Yeah. Uh, so people, instead, you know, I'll work 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours. And the, the, the pride almost comes from the number of hours you work. That makes not, me a good person. That's right. I did 80 hours right. this oh, week. I'm great. That's right. I, I'm doubly as good as somebody <laughs> who only works 40 hours. And so I, I sort of work an average of about 20 hours a week and, and really less most weeks. But that's if I'm awesome. getting as much done in 20 hours as somebody else is in 60, is the person working 60 hours doing a better job than me? And I would argue, no, I, I'm far more effective than they are. But as a society... Uh, we sort of said, boy, that person that works 60 hours, they must really be a company man or a company woman, right? They're really putting in the time, yeah, even I, if they're not getting done. Oh, I, I really can't stand that mentality. And and uh, I think to look at that and, and not focus on productivity at all just makes no sense to me. Because they, they say that nine to five, you're... I don't know, maybe you got a couple of hours of real productivity okay. in there. Maybe. And the studies keep saying less and less. The studies are talking about now that, that maybe you've got an hour or two of total product time during the entire day. Oh, no. And, and that once you get past, so in the States, 40 hours is considered a, a typical work week. But that once you get past 40 hours, that your productivity falls dramatically. And that, that really, in almost every study, somebody working 60 hours is in almost no case getting more done than the person working 40 hours. So you focus on actually looking at what you needed to have uh, the life that you wanted 
and what you need to do to achieve that. Yeah. So I looked at, all right, uh, how do I deliver on my promise to clients? Right. That's my number one. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, right, so, I, I've made them a promise yeah. that I'm going to deliver a certain level of service, but I didn't promise them that I would do that working 60 hours. Right. And, and no one would actually, as a client would take that. If I said, boy, don't worry, I'm going to work myself to death for you. <laughs> no, one, no one would be excited by that offer. Um, <laughs> Great. Great. I, congratulations. I think you're the one for um, me. And then when you're dead, I'll get somebody else. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, it's not you know, uh, burned out. So instead, I say, hey, listen, here's what I'm going to do for you. And I'm always going to deliver on this promise. And in fact, I'm always going to exceed my promise there. And then that's sort of my promise to them. And then for me, I'm saying, all right, well, how do I deliver on that promise with the least amount of effort possible? Now, this isn't like solving for laziness. It's just saying, hey, if I can get it done in one hour, it's no benefit to no one for me to spend four hours on it. That's right. It's just waste. It's just, a, it's just empty time when you, uh -huh. you get to the same result. But this isn't as this. This sounds uh, straightforward, but it would be hard for a lot of people to sit down and do this. So you, you have a system. Yeah, you know. So one of the places that really inspired that was when I read Tim Ferriss's legendary book, The Four Hour Workweek. Um, talked about a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just a just a legendary book. I'm not sure I like his other books quite as much, but that's another story for another day. The Four Hour <laughs> Workweek, spectacular book. Um, and for those of us that are entrepreneurs. It, it can be at least logistically very easy to take control of your time. Emotionally, it's a little harder for those that work, you know, for a, a company, it's, it's trickier to control your time because someone else is dictating that. But Tim gives examples of, of how to make that possible. So I started solving for how much am I earning per hour that I work mm -hmm. instead of just looking at how much I'm earning for a year. Well, how does that divide out by my working hours? And is there a way that I can dramatically improve that? And what were some of the steps if you, if you can share them? There, there's this rule called Parkinson's law which says that an activity will take as much time as is allocated to it. Okay. Kind of a, another example is backpacking. Those like, I like the to bigger it is, the bigger it is, the, the, the more, more stuff you, you bring, can put in. Right. Bigger the no house. How big your backpack probably, is. Yeah. yeah okay. That, uh, that makes time sense. Is the same way. Uh, however much time you allocate to something, it will never be enough. So the first thing I started doing is I refused to uh, work on Fridays. Okay. I just, and at first it was awful because I was going from five days of working to four and I had to get all of this work done in four days, uh, but I forced myself to find a way, right? Um, in, uh, necessity is the mother of innovation. Hmm. And so I just said, all right, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Now, some people will say, well, that seems pretty dramatic to not work on Fridays, but we all already have those lines. You know, very few of us are working at 2 a.m. on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, very few of us are taking phone calls in the shower. Yeah, how did uh, these lines get drawn? But we can't draw our own. We, we draw these yeah. societal lines, but what about the personal lines? Yeah. So the lines are all made up to begin with. So let's just mm -hmm. make up a different line. Let's make up a line that empowers me instead of crushes me. Sure. So you you gave yourself a smaller timeline. Don't they they have this uh, program called like the three month year or something like that? Do you know, do you know what it is? You are three or four months where where they help you get everything that you were going to get done in your year done in, uh, in three or four months or maybe uh, half the half the year. And and it's just because, like you just said, you all, that's all you have. That's your time. That's your timeline. That's a, I, I really like that idea. Is that you know you're like I'm not working Friday. I'm def I'm not going to do it. So what do I got to do today to make that happen? And so just working backwards that 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 yeah. helped at at first. Yeah. And then um, another one that I, I had an opportunity to take my family to China for three weeks, deep into China where there's no phone and internet kind of sure, thing. Sure. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to be totally out of pocket for three weeks. I better figure this out. So I booked the flights non-refundable. I was terrified up to the last minute. But I thought, you know what? This is my chance. I'm, I'm just going to find a way to make that work. I'm going to find a way to be gone for three weeks. Essentially, no phone and no internet. I can kind of relate to this, right? Because like I was just plotting out the, the podcast guests I was telling you before the show. Yeah. And 
I know what I want to achieve, a weekly show, and I have a list of people, and now I'm doing all this stuff to make that happen. And if I was just like, oh, I wonder who's going to be on the show next week. <laughs> I don't yeah. know that it would really happen, but you start with you start with the goal and you work backwards. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes so much sense. And you're, um, you're teaching this to people, is that right? Yeah, so uh, last year I had the opportunity to partner with, uh, with a gal named Stephanie Bogan, and, and she and I launched a, uh, a group coaching program for financial advisors in the States. Well, actually, you know, we have advisors from Canada as well. Oh, do you? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, a couple. It's it, it really a lot of fun. And so it's advisors that want to, you know, kind of take control of their practice and, and have a better work-life balance. And so we, um, Stephanie and I had originally thought, hey, if we could just get 10 people to sign up, then we could do this thing. Yeah. We put it out there, made a couple of announcements, and then we turned around and 55 people had signed up. And we had to just turn everybody, we had to beat everybody else away with a stick because we couldn't get any more hotel space for our events. That's amazing. And so now we work with these advisors. I was just in in Texas last week meeting with the group and teach them, all right, how do we, you know, how do you do this? And just like the taking the Fridays off, right? You already have these boundaries set up in your life. I don't work Sundays at 2 a.m. I don't take phone calls when I'm in the shower. Uh, let's just expand these these boundaries, uh, make them more intentional. And is it is about uh, finding clients too that will accept your terms? Yeah, and, and again, like we talked about with specialties, there's all sorts of clients that will accept those terms, right? If I go to a client and I say, hey, uh, well, I went to my clients and say, hey, I, I have this opportunity to take my family to China for three weeks. And here's what we're doing to make sure that your service is uninterrupted. Sure. But I also need a little bit of your patience. You're not going to be able to get a hold of me for three weeks. And, and who said no to that? Who called me up and said, Matthew, you're a real bum taking your family to China. Uh, maybe <laughs> somebody thought you? that and I don't want them as a client. But everybody else is saying, boy, I wish I would have done that. I wish I had better boundaries in my own life. Yes, as long as I'm being taken care of. You know, I don't care what my doctor does when I'm, he's not seeing me That's or right. she's not seeing me. I just want them to, when, when they're seeing me, I want them to be there and, and give their best effort to me. And when they're not seeing me, I don't care what they're doing. Yeah, and, and it's up to us to, uh, you know, we look to society for permission to do this stuff. Yeah, and so we that do. we don't do, we don't do this stuff. Oh, I'll be look, I'll be frowned upon uh, if yeah. I do that. <laughs> and and who cares, right? First of all. Uh, but yeah, and uh, nobody else is happy with what they're doing, right? Yeah. It's not like somebody got together and said, boy, this is really how should society should run. It was just sort of all by accident. Like, why do we need permission from the miserable people? to that's do right. what we want, right? That, that doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, but, uh, you know, at least I'm going to be unhappy too, and but at least they're going to be okay with that. You know, how yeah, about, yeah. How, it's so backwards and, and we're all allowed to live the life that we want. And especially like you're, you started in, an, you're in an entrepreneurial business. It's that you work for yourself. So if, if anyone, you should be able to change your practice the way that you want. And to, the, that there's some people that find, um, that's still to be strange that you have a, what do they, they have a name for the type of practice that you have, right? Kind of a lifestyle practice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which a lot of people use actually like in a demeaning term. Okay. The, this makes no sense, right? Uh, <laughs> calling something a lifestyle practice. What, like, um, what's, the, what's the alternative? Like, uh, I hate my life practice. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, again, our industry, like, like everything, I think it's just human nature. It's all about driving to the next level, right? Next level, next level. And, and nobody stops to look at the cost. I, I happen to run into a surgeon uh, on vacation and, and this fellow, he's, he's making like $2 million a year as some really renowned surgeon. Mm -hmm. I didn't know they could make that much. So the guy's making like $2 million bucks a year. He says, you know what, Matthew, I'm a, I am an amazing provider for my family, but I'm a terrible parent. I only take a max of two weeks of vacation a year. Oh. So in his industry, he's celebrated because he's making all this money, right? I mean, he must be seeing thousands of patients doing great things, making all this money. 
and yet he never sees his family. I mean, how is this guy the hero? But yeah. our society would deem him the hero, right? He's he's hit the highest level of success in his industry, and yet you know his family is paying the price. Is th- this is really what he values? I I I think if that's what if that's what builds his self esteem and makes him feel good about himself, being a, a not so good parent. Uh, yeah. and, and family member, but being great at what he does. I don't know if I'm allowed to judge him for that. I, I, yeah, think... you know, I, I certainly wouldn't, right? Because that's what he's been programmed, right? We've all been programmed. You know, kind of, there's kind of this thing, right? The more money you make, the, you know, the better you must be at something, right? Does he know that that's what he's doing? Like, that's, that's the thing I want to make sure. I want to make yeah. sure that he's actively making this choice. Like, family, not so it. important. Uh, work, uh, definitely important. Uh, money, definitely important. Spending the money, not so important. Having the money, very important. Like, is he going through his check this checklist? Because no, if, I, I doubt it. I, right? I really doubt. It. He seemed like a real sincere guy. I mean, he kind of said it in, in a remorseful way. You know, I can't imagine that as a teenager he thought, "I'm going to go to medical school, school and become a doctor and a renowned surgeon all across the world, so that I can never see my family." <laughs> right. Nobody just, sets these goals. That. Yeah, I'd like to never see my family. So, but if your goal on the wall is make as much money as you can, then everything falls in behind that. Well, you know, yeah, good for you for making that a priority. You know, it's not everybody's priority to spend like, you know, some people love work, right? And I get yeah, that. Sure. And if that's the choice that they make, great. And I mean, you know, you want to balance and you want to have a, a family members. And, and if you have kids, you want to have a family that understands that. And if that's great, great. I just don't understand why it's so hard for people. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I do understand. I understand why it's hard for people to change. Change is hard. Oh, change is right? very hard. It's really, really hard. And I think it's our job, mine and, and yours, because you've done this, to keep talking about it so it can be more normalized. And, you know, you do need less money when, when you're living the life that you want. You, you are able, but I mean, e- even though uh, you need less money, you're not living on less money. You're doing very well on your clients, correct? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm blessed. I've, I've got, you know, a great lifestyle and, and great financial success, but... But you know, at the same time, I'm not I'm not perfect at this either, right? For, so, for example, I live in in Washington State, not Washington, the capital of the United States, but Washington State. It's over by uh, like uh, British Columbia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've lived here my whole life. Why? I don't know. I was born here. I was raised here. I don't particularly care for the rain that we get all the time. It's always cloudy. But you know, I just have never had the courage to move somewhere else. So I, I don't want to sound like I'm on my high horse saying, "Boy, you know, I'm intentional about everything in my life." There are plenty of things I'm not intentional about. I just happen to be intentional about my lifestyle as far as time I take off work. Well, and so I, I still have a lot of room to improve. Sure, but you also still have a lot of life to live. How old are you? 36. Yeah, 36. So I'm still trying to get this figured out. I got you're a couple years to, uh, for, from to figure it out. Some people's perspectives, <laughs> you're, still, uh, you're still a baby. So you're still... <laughs> I, that's what I try to tell myself. My kids don't believe it. But <laughs> And so how many, ki- how many kids do you have now? I have uh, three kids. I have two girls and a boy. They are uh, 12, 9, and 7. That's great. You started early. Wow. Wait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> early early 20s. Wow. Uh, yeah. Thanks yeah. so much for coming on the show and, and yeah, talking about this me. stuff. Because I think people, you know, just because you're you're not Canadian doesn't mean what you're talking about is not valuable. You know, we didn't talk about what investments and we didn't get into 401ks and IRAs and stuff. And, you know, it doesn't have to be all Canadian uh, based stuff because we're just talking about about life and and uh, uh, general tips and values. Right. Yeah. And we all share that same human condition. Right. I mean, our, our cultures might be a little bit different and they, and they certainly are in some areas. But right. We all come from that same. Uh, evolutionary chain, which is you, you got to work all the time, lest the famine come, right? Lest the crops stop growing and, and you die. 
Um, and so we sort of get caught up in that in our core. And like you mentioned, but we, we've got this culture of shame around money mm -hmm. and, and that you can't talk about it unless you want to show that you've got more money than somebody else, right? Uh, you know, unless your car is better than somebody else's and then it's okay somehow. Yeah, we, we, we have skewed values, I think. We do. And we, and we got to start changing them. So yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm glad that you... Uh, Got an upgrade uh, to your hotel uh, that had a grand piano in, <laughs> it, you in, were, in Dallas. Go down and play it. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I just got this. I got this email at FinCon uh, last October, right? It was October. Yeah. And it's like, hey, if anybody uh, knows how to play piano, I just got upgraded to this room that has a a grand piano in it, or just like the the suite uh, that was attached. Yeah, some hospitality hospitality suite. suite. Yeah. And I said, I'll come play that piano. Uh, you know, I'll, I love play any piano is there so hey and you're you're very appreciative and everybody everybody's singing along um, yeah we had a lot of fun didn't it we? was that fun was yeah and yeah. and uh this is how you meet people you know you uh go and do th do things <laughs> yeah. right don't just stay at home go to a conference oh. respond to emails go and meet people you never have and and uh, put yourself out there and then uh you know this we make connections so uh, I'll see you at uh, uh, FinCon uh, in September, if uh, if not before. Yeah, I hope so. I'm uh, actually I'll be down in September, down in Florida in September, where FinCon is. We're starting a uh, year and a half long boat trip. So what? That's where we're kicking it off from. Yeah. Oh, but that's a nice. podcast for another day. That is that. Oh wow. <laughs> Let's talk, we'll talk more about that. But uh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. <laughs> so I have so many follow up questions, but I'll I'll, I'll save I them. I want to put that teaser out there. Yeah, for just put it out so there. The boat again. trip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Matt Jarvis, Jarvis Financial. And if if you are in the uh, Washington uh, State uh, area, uh, look him up. I'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Matt. Hey, take care. You too. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean a lot to me, and it only takes a few seconds. For the show notes and any links from the episode, head over to my website, investwisely.ca. And while you're there, please feel free to send me a message on my contact page. Thanks so much for listening to The Personal Finance Show. I'll be back next week with Laurie Campbell, CEO of Credit Canada. <laughs>